This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juwetha Gupta, and this is The Pulse. In August 2020, the Toronto Police Service agreed to pay $16.5 million to protesters who were wrongly held during the Toronto 2010 G20 protests. The G20 summit took place in the Greater Toronto Area just a few years after the 2008 economic recession. And it was a time of great hardship, especially for young people. In light of that, the protests became a galvanizing point for a range of issues, everything from Indigenous rights to gender justice, as well as economic austerity and a range of other social justice issues were on the table. One of the downsides to the protests and the summit was the deep and pervasive expansion of the police state. There was a visible police presence, there was a fence circling off venues in Toronto, not to mention the now infamous kettle, as well as detentions of not only protesters, but ordinary people going about their business. As a result of the G20 summit and the protests, as well as the way in which the protests were handled, Toronto was left in a bit of a quandary. The city could no longer lay claim to its identity of Toronto the good. Today, we look back on the G20 protests through the lens of disability. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. And welcome back to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joita Gupta. It's really good to be with you today. Today we're talking about the G20 protests that took place here in Toronto about 10 years ago, a little more than 10 years ago, but with a twist. My guest today is Dorothy Ellen Palmer, who you might remember from a previous episode of the program when she talked about her memoir, Falling for Myself. But let me remind you, Dorothy is a disabled writer, retired teacher, improv coach, and union activist, amongst other things. And today joining us again is Dorothy Palmer talking about her new book, Kerfuffle, which is set during the G20 protests in Toronto. Dorothy, welcome back to the program. It's really great to have you with us. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And that was a fabulous introduction. Thank you. Oh, well, come on. I can't take credit for how awesome you are. Tell me a little bit about what it is about the G20 protests that took place in Toronto in 2010 that drew you to the setting as a writer. I think it was the demonization of protests and the demonization of young people. Um, Those young people in the streets during the protests were effectively my 30 years of teaching. They were all my students. And the very notion that they were all just, you know, hooligans and vandals and out to destroy things was just infuriatingly insulting at a Mm -hmm. time when the recession was making their lives increasingly untenable. They couldn't get decent jobs. They couldn't get decent housing. It was the beginning of the time when they were realizing they could never own a home in Toronto. They had legitimate grievances. And so the way the press portrayed those protesters as uh, not having legitimate grievances was really infuriating. I felt it had wider ramifications, obviously, for the right to protest in general and would be used and was used as an to uh, expand police power and police brutality that have eventuated in things like the way 
they have felt the right to walk into encampments last summer and simply take all those people's belongings, everything they owned. It's the kind of, of the G20 protests were a crucible moment for Canada in that way. At the center of your book is an improv troupe. Now, I mentioned you were an improv coach. That would explain part of why you talked about improv in the book as much as you do. But what else is it about improv that might help us to look at these protests with fresh eyes, if you don't mind me using uh, a pun that that plays on sight? (laughs) Yeah, it's impossible to completely remove ableist language, isn't it? But anyway, um, I think Improv is a lot of things to me. First of all, I had the pleasure and the honor of watching, you know, the 30 years of students use improv, not only to make each other laugh, but to explore really difficult situations in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, improv in my classroom wasn't just about humor. It was also situational improv, where we would look at a situation where a student was being sexually harassed in the cafeteria. And we would replay that situation and examine it and see what kinds of choices both the characters and the bystanders had. So it's both fun and useful, a useful tool. I also wanted desperately to use humor in a book with disabled improvers. Two in the troupe are disabled. And I really wanted to use the idea that disabled people don't lead sad, lonely, dispirited lives, but can actually be comics and enjoy and spread fun and uh, a critical kind of thinking fun at the same time. Mm. There's a lot to go over in the books, but tell us about the two characters or tell us about the improv troupe and who some of the main characters are. There's no single main character in the book. There's a number of, of protagonists, but just tell us briefly about who they all are. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm glad you found that out because it's so true. Improv is an ensemble art, and I didn't want there to be a single main character. All five characters of the troupe have a strong role to play. Um, Andy is the youngest of the troupe. He seems happy-go-lucky and fun until you dig a little deeper and realize he's the sole caregiver for a mom with Alzheimer's. Um, Cal is the oldest member of the troupe and just getting his PhD and trying to figure out what to become of that. He's also suffering because he's from Haiti and his brother died in the Haitian earthquake earlier that year. Connie is a young lesbian poet who has been best friends with Nellie since high school and is struggling with coming out to her family. Sherm and Nellie are the two disabled characters. Sherm has a stutter that he's had most of his life. Um, when he's on stage, he manages to control it a little bit, as do several people with stutters when they sing or going to roll. Certainly doesn't cure the stutter, nor would they want it to. It mm. simply um, sometimes makes it possible to uh, speak more clearly more of the time. Nellie is physically disabled. She walks with a crutch, much like the one that I used for several years. Um, she has my increasing degenerative disability. And she's the one who also is nine months pregnant and trying to help the men in her troop, several of them could be the father, to come to grips with the fact that they should take responsibility for possibly Mm -hmm. being the father. Mm -hmm. 
When we talk about Nellie and her desire that the men in the troop take some responsibility for being the prospective father of her of her twins, one of the themes that comes up in the book that I love is around female friendship. And there's this great line, which I'm sorry, I'm going to paraphrase, but the line basically says, you know, I'm really glad we're not tearing each other down as women, that we're sticking up for one another and not in defense of men who cheat. Why was it important for you to to bring in the theme or this idea about female friendship? I think it's a power that moves the world and is underrepresented in literature. Female friendships are incredibly important. I think also that this is solidarity in a situation where Nellie's baby daddy could be one of the troop's husbands, uh, one of the troop's brothers, and the women in her life band around her. They don't do the sort of, you know, talk show, uh, Jerry Springer attack mode where they, the two women attack each other. They actually support Nellie and work together to try to help the men understand that they need to take responsibility. So there's female friendship, but there's also a a whole grab bag of other ideas and themes thrown into the book. And I hope we'll get a chance to talk about some of them at least today. But just thinking back to the G20 protests, which is the background and the setting for your book, I want to ask you a little bit about the research process, because at least for those of us who lived in Toronto, the, the protests, the summit really changed the way we felt about ourselves and about the city How did you balance writing what is basically a work of fiction with having portrayals that are nonetheless respectful and accurate of the people and the impact of the protests and the summit? Oh, that's a really good question. I was originally trained as an historian, so I've always been interested in blending history with fiction. Mm -hmm. So I did the traditional research online, read everything I could, and also interviewed a whole number of protesters. That was um, very important, giving me sort of the human touch. I guess it was important to me to have several crucible moments that were real. So the burning police car, we'll see. The uh, moment um, of the kettle took place in the accurate time and place with the accurate number of people and many of the things that went on in the kettle actually went on in the kettle. The detention center, uh, the Toronto Film uh, Studio Detention Center, where Nellie is interred for some time, is also as accurate to the research as I could make it. I wanted to write a work of fiction that made the reality of the protest and the brutality and the incarcerations and the kettle all come alive. Mm-hmm. You talked about Nellie's time spent in the detention center. And of course, if you think back to 10 years ago, there were some news reports about deaf protesters being manhandled and abused by the police. So people with disabilities did turn up to protest. How was Nellie treated? And and to what extent is Nellie's treatment representative of attitudes towards people with disabilities when it comes to treatment by the police or even treatment by fellow protesters, for that matter? Yeah, um, a little known statistic is that as many as 50% of people shot by the police are disabled. Mm-hmm. And obviously, um, the gentleman with a prosthetic leg who was arrested during the protests and it, because his leg was considered a weapon 
that really happened. That that's true. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when the police arrest Nellie and tell her her crutch is a weapon and take it away from her, that's entirely possible. And then they tell her to they put her hands behind her back so that she couldn't use her crutch even if they gave it back to her, and tell her to walk to the police van, which is of course completely impossible um, for her. And they have to sort of manhandle her to the police van. When she gets uh, to the, they've taken her glasses at some point, which is also an assistive device um, because some 50% of us are visually disabled and need assistive devices called glasses. She is therefore completely unbalanced, um, unable to have a crutch, unable to have her glasses. Everything she perceives in the detention center is seen through that trauma and that her inability to really assess and the huge fear that she feels because she can't even literally see what might be coming next. I think mm-hmm. all of that, that cruelty, that refusal to understand that disabled people um, aren't faking it, but need all those things is entirely typical of the kind of, of behavior that some disabled people have experienced at the hands of the police. Mm-hmm. And yet there's this really surreal moment in the book where one of the police officers, an older officer, brings her a sandwich and says to Nellie, you got to stay in here because there are black block protesters out there and you need to be safe in a detention center where she hasn't got access to running water or uh, to a door blocking off the washroom. So it's not exactly the best place to be keeping someone for their safety or just keeping people in general. What does this say about attitudes around policing in particular? I know in the 10 years since, especially when you think about Black Lives Matter, I think people have overall become more critical about policing. But does the does Nellie's story and her treatment add another nuanced layer to that conversation about police and police brutality? I think so. I think a nine-month pregnant disabled protester on a crutch is probably not much of a threat to a six foot two police officer who's just passed all kinds of physical training. And the idea that they still have to assert power and dominance over her, either power and dominance physically, or like that police officer you mentioned, power and dominance by being condescending, like you poor little child will look after you, um, having to assert that power and dominance either way it's very typical to the way disabled people are treated, even by the general public and not just by the police. I know that the book is a book of fiction, but are there elements of memoir in there as well? I mean, you did make some connections between uh, Nellie and yourself. And I know that there's a, a Mrs. Palmer who shows up as an improv coach uh, in some of the scenes in the book. So is there an, a facet of memoir to this book as well? I would say that all of the troop members are loosely based on some of my students. I did teach a pair of twins from Haiti. Um, I certainly taught several young women struggling to come out of the closet. I think that um, putting myself as the improv teacher at the end was just kind of a fun moment and a link link it to reality. I did have a, a student who stuttered, who stuttered far less on stage when he went into role, particularly when he went into role in accent. So it's a really, um, writers always use the building blocks of their lives. 
So I don't know if I'd necessarily say it was memoir, but I'd say it was using building blocks of my own experience. I'm Juita Gupta, and my guest today is disabled writer Dorothy Palmer. Dorothy is talking about her new book, published by Renaissance Press, called Kerfuffle, which is set in Toronto during the 2010 G20 protests. Dorothy, I like to give authors a chance to do a bit of a reading. Um, I know it's asking a lot, but you're going to have to pick 60 seconds of a really amazing book to read out to us. What do you have for us? Okay, thank you. I'm going to read the introduction. Act 1, Friday, June 25th, 2010. Some buildings are as alive as we are. Some live like cats. They purr. They hiss. They get prized and petted or neglected and abused. Gifted with a long view of history, thanks to their more than nine lives, buildings become wise by staying curious. As their keen eyes pierce decades in darkness, they see all that humans try to hide. In the dark before dawn on this steamy June weekend, our red bick, green-eyed Grimalkin, Black Black Theater, is restless. She slips her back window, climbs ivy, scales the roof, and mounts the chimney. Hers is a panoramic view of iconic Toronto crosswords. Dotted along Queen Street, scurrying up Spadina Avenue, streetcars squeak by, like massive steampunkian mice, but more than vermin are afoot tonight. Can I ask you a question? It's sort of a, you mentioned the five main characters, and yet there are a number of other people who make appearances in the book as well. And one of them is the building in which the improv company is housed. It too takes on a, a voice. Why was it so important for you to give the improv company and the building in which it's housed a voice of its own? Black Cat Theater um, kind of came to me in, and I pushed her away a number of times because I thought, mm -hmm. no, people won't do it as realistic. But Black Cat is both sort of an omniscient narrator and the embodiment or familiar of the theater itself. Hence, it's called Black Cat Theater. Mm -hmm. And she is important to me as a character for, I guess, two reasons. One, Toronto has a very long, very rich, very important history in uh, the story of how improv came to be practiced as an art. Um, many improvisers are Canadian, and the tradition of improv that remains alive in the city with many uh, comedy clubs. Secondly, I also think after, you know, decades of teaching in a theater, I honestly believe that the theater had its own kind of ambience, its own mm -hmm. feeling, its own, uh, spoke, it spoke to the world. And that was only a small step away from giving it an actual voice and embodiment, in this case, as a magic cat. The other scenes in the book that I really loved reading, just because they're so humorous, are the interactions between Nellie, who, as you mentioned, is disabled, pregnant, and also a sword stealer. Tell us a little bit about Excalibur and how you come up with Excalibur. What role does a, a sword from Arthurian legend play in, in the story uh, that we're talking about today? Um, Excalibur is one of my favorite characters as well. He's mm -hmm. the talking sword Excalibur that Nellie steals from the museum. It was really important to me as I wrote this book in its final draft in particular during the pandemic to keep myself 
um, happy and, and feeling that I could bring all of my favorite things into the book. So I'm a big uh, Arthurian Camelot nerd, so it was really exciting to be able to bring that into a book. And it was really, really fun to have this sort of snippy sword um, conversing with Nellie and trying to convince her what to do and what not to do. And I have people understand it's actually in her head, like conscience, but it's also a character in and of itself. In the end, when the sword is used in the on stage after they do the sound of mutants, which is the sound of music mixed with the X-Men, the sword gets sort of the moment of the big reveal, which is also really exciting for Excalibur. I don't want to give away the ending of the book in any way, shape or form, but the notions around grief personal grief, you know, losing a loved one, losing children, and also maybe, if I can extend the notion, losing the identity of Toronto, of Toronto the good, after the G20 and the way the protesters were handled and manhandled by the police. How does the book, would you say, delve into the notions of grief? Um, You just made my day by making that connection, because it is one I hoped readers would make. There is a lot of loss in this book. Uh, Cal is grieving his dead brother who died um, in the earthquake in Haiti. Nellie is grieving her parents who died at the hands of a drunk driver. And all of that sort of loss and, and when someone dies in your life, your own identity changes as well. You're no longer the person mm-hmm. you were when they were with you. And uh, there's a certain loss of innocence in that as well, I guess. And Toronto went through the same thing during the G20. They lost their identity. They lost their sense of being Toronto the good. Not necessarily that every marginalized group ever saw Toronto that way in the first place. But certainly that was sort of the public image of Toronto as Toronto the good. And all of that was also lost. And there's a certain grief in that loss. But at at the end of the book, there's a wonderful reborn identity well, who are you going to be now? What is it possible to build now? Do you think the book, um, I know it's it's meant really for anyone and everyone, but what are you hoping that people who read the book will take away from it? Hmm. I'm hoping they'll realize that disabled people lead interesting, complex lives. I'm hoping they'll realize that the increasing fascism of the G, reflected in the G20 protests is still with us. The trucker protest was very prescient, whereby the police will leave right-wing protesters alone and throw left-wing protesters in jail. Mm-hmm. I also think that they come away with the watchword of the book, which is green. Um, something green can be grown anew. And in the places of what has been, we're able to be green and do something different and something new and build a new Toronto. And hopefully that'll be the final message they take away. What about you? I mean, you've just uh, put the finishing touches on this book. Um, First of all, let us know where we can grab a copy if you want to read it. And second of all, just in the minute or so we have left, what are you planning to work on next? Um, The book is published by Renaissance Press. It's available everywhere. It's uh, accessible as well in ebook version so you can buy it at your local bookstore you can buy it at amazon i'm encouraging people during the pandemic to buy online rather than putting more delivery people in the street i'm working right now on two things 
I'm working on a thriller, um, simply to do something completely different. And mm-hmm. I've also been working on a series of articles about what it's been like to be a disabled senior during the pandemic. We'll have to get you back in there to talk about both the thriller and your articles, which I think are extremely timely given some of the news headlines I read just this morning. Dorothy, thank you very much for joining us. And if you don't mind me borrowing a phrase from your book, thanks a lot for saying yes to the drama that is The Pulse. Thank you. It was a lovely interview. Dorothy Allen Palmer is a disabled writer, improv coach, retired teacher, and, as you heard, the author of Kerfuffle, which is a great read. Um, it does it does take some uh, time to sort of digest the different layers of the book. I really enjoyed it. Normally, I tend to uh, frantically finish books, you know, the night before I'm supposed to interview guests. But in this instance, I was really glad I was able to finish it on Monday night and had a couple days to think about it and hopefully ask some keen questions about it. So I hope you'll pick this one up. It was great being with you today. Nisreen Abdul-Majid is our technical producer. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. And I'm Joita Gupta. I've been your host today. Thanks for listening. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.